And so if I was not attentive to the little uh, interruptions of mystery and grace, I think I would be missing God entirely most days. Um, For example, you know, when my daughter will just reach out and take my hand or run, run her fingers through my hair or something like that, right? I mean, that is a that is a a tremendous sacrament of of God's love. Joshua Wren is founder of Wise Blood Books and co-founder of the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. His essays and poems have appeared in such venues as First Things, Catholic World Report, New Oxford Review, and Logos. His books include the novel Infinite Regress and a volume of poems titled Last Things, First Things, and other lost causes. We speak today about a short theological aesthetical manifesto he published last year titled Contemplative Realism. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Joshua Wren, it's good to see you on the Faith and Imagination podcast. Thanks for coming in today to talk with me. Oh yeah, it's a pure joy to be here with you, Matthew. Thank you. So we're talking today about what you describe, I think provocatively, as a theological, aesthetical manifesto, uh, this small but provocative book titled Contemplative Realism. I'll just start this way. How was this manifesto born? Like, How did the idea of contemplative realism come to you in the first place? Sure. So I had been engaging with a lot of the questions that the book addresses with my students in a class called The Art of Metaphysics of Fiction. And uh, these conversations were very rich. And I had not written anything for quite a while because the demands of teaching were really keeping me away from the writing desk. And one day I asked my wife just for an hour to go up and hash out a few things. And instead, I think I came down seven hours later after entering almost kind of like a fugue state of writing (laughs) uh, where I hammered out the first draft of this, which was really, again, the fruition of not just a semester's worth of thinking, but but many years, maybe even a decade worth of of wrestling with these questions. Uh, So I'm indebted, I'm indebted to my students and I'm indebted to a lot of other Catholic and Christian writers. Fantastic. It doesn't read like a book that is a is a clever idea kind of hashed in the spur of the moment. It reads like a book that you've been thinking about for some time. It does. Um, let me ask you a question about, about the book. By the way, to listeners who think I sound different, I'm not on our fancy podcast equipment today. I'm at home because my wife has a positive for COVID and I'm just kind of laying low for a few days so that I don't expose anybody else. Um, so sorry about the sound on my end. Um, you sound great though, Joshua. So, um, let me ask you this. In, in his book, Contemplative Prayer, uh, Thomas Merton writes, and I'm quoting him here, contemplation is both insufficient and ambiguous when it's applied to the highest forms of Christian prayer. Um, this is because, he says, that the person attempting such prayer must, somewhat paradoxically, uh, he says, abandon the world only in order to listen to it more intently. So in other words, contemplative prayer is less about withdrawal from the world then it is a more intensive engagement of the world. And is this your vision for contemplative realism, or is the latter something different altogether? Yeah, no, that's a, a that is a really uh, provocative passage from Merton, and it reminds me a little bit of a of another passage by the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he says that 
The contemplative must therefore be present with all his senses, though he is not to understand anything carnally in a worldly fashion, but rather he should put himself in the place in the situation where God's word sounds audibly and impinges on his senses. And he should take his stand there and let this concrete meeting with God happen. And so I, I do think that, that there is a paradox or rather a tension in that contemplative, com, the contemplative act by its very nature can pull us in not just two directions, but I would say three. On the one hand, contempt, uh, excuse me, contemplation can involve really just opening up the eyes of our hearts to the attributes of God, for example, his infinity, his perfection, his omnipotence. And then it can also, though, lead us to a direct engagement with very concrete and tangible aspects or in instantiations of his creation. So, for example, the leaves on a tree or the sound of a waterfall, um, the sound of a, a of a donkey baying. Uh, we could enumerate the examples and and try to really listen for the mystery that's present in the book of nature. And then thirdly, it can also take us inside of ourselves so that we are seeking through contemplation deeper self-knowledge. Um, but as um, St. Teresa of Avila says in her interior castle, she says that on the, when we seek self-knowledge, we always have to remember that the bee is constantly flying about from flower to flower in the same way the soul must sometimes emerge from these pursuits of interior self-knowledge and soar aloft upon meditation in the greatest and highest majesty of God. So I think that there is a there's a constant need to shift between those three modes because pursuing any one of them excessively uh, will lead to a kind of disorientation. Okay, you know, you said something in the um, in that quote from Balthazar that's provocative and, and leads to a question here, which is that. Um, what we're seeking here is nothing carnal, and yet it appeals to the senses, right? So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a sensate relation here, but not carnal sensation. Let me ask you about this then, about, about that, that title, that phrase contemplative realism. So literary realism, which flourishes in the 19th century for the most part, and it has a long afterlife, but um, literary realism has been under siege for a long time in literary studies on a couple grounds. You know, what constitutes reality mm -hmm. and is what constitutes reality still good literary art? Mm -hmm. And realism may or may not get at either one of those things, but a core premise of literary realism is that we can at least agree that what we can see and touch, what is materially present to us, is real at some basic level, a kind of a lowest common denominator realism. Um, do contemplative realists accept realism presented on those grounds, or is there a, a flaw even in that simplest version of reality? Yeah, so I do, I do think that there is a, a flaw in that aspect of realism that would reduce the real to that which is tangible and empirically verifiable. That is maybe the the aspect of realism that is its its weakest. There are other strong suits which I'll come to in a second, but uh, you know I, I think of, for example, the consensus of the church fathers that that which is unseen is far vaster and more real 
than that which we see. And even for a lot of believers, you know, the way that we spend our days is as if the tangible and the material is more substantial, more complete, more satisfying than that which is unseen. And so it's it's not just realists who can fall into that trap. You know, we sort of reserve these little sellers of our souls for unseen realities, angels, demons, etc. Right, uh, God. But um, but we oftentimes really kind of keep that keep it in the cellar. Um, so I do I do though want to to clarify that the reason that I call the the long essay book uh, contemplative realism is because. Realism in literature gave us a lot of really significant gains, moving the novel beyond its kind of youthful infancy of giving us kind of unsatisfying, sentimental, romantic, easily tied up answers for everything, uh, rosy, but unbelievable relationships, moving beyond all of that to give us really, as Willa Cather said, it, a kind of realism is a, is a, is a protest against lies to give us uh, the contours of characters' psyches with great exactitude and kind of piercing and searing truthfulness that is kind of unsettling, right? When we, when we, when we receive uh, these psychological portraits with all of their richness, it's, it's, it's a lot to absorb. So I, I also just want to, to express gratitude and a debt for those gains of realism, even as that, that first element that we talked about is, is, is a serious uh, weakness. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I, I really do. Um, and there's so many wonderful uh, sort of novels that belong to the realist tradition, right? And, and to, to build on that legacy, I think is a strength of what you're trying to do here with the book. Um, uh, let me ask you, I, this is such a thoughtful book. And there are a lot of passages in it that strike me as, as, as really compelling passages. And maybe let me cite a few of them and ask you to comment on them if you would. Is that all right? Oh, absolutely. So here's the first one. And just I'll kind of go through the book just by pages here. And I don't know how we'll get to it in the time that we have. But here's the first. Uh, it's from page seven. You write this. If nature croons with beauty, it also groans for redemption, twitching under the fierce jaws of necessity. <laughs> you explain? Yeah, absolutely. So in a exchange that the poet Czesław Miłosz, the Polish poet who ended up in California, uh, had an exchange with the monk Thomas Merton, who we discussed earlier. And he's kind of trying to offer a corrective to Merton because he says every time Merton speaks of nature, it appears to him as if it's this soothing thing that is rich in symbols but he worries that Merton has turned nature into what he calls a veil or a curtain. Mm -hmm. And then he continues in this little piece of advice and rejoin or corrective. He says, you do not pay much attention to torture or suffering in nature. Right. So, um, so I do think that there is again, in contemplative realism, an attempt to take the both and answer to a lot of questions. Uh, if I could just briefly circle back to, for example, the, the weaknesses of, of realism in a lot of realist literature, there's, a, there's an insistence that what is most real is that which is most difficult to stomach. It's the kind of the ugliest aspects of reality. It's the underbelly. And so there's an attempt to kind of almost focus our imaginations on 
the horrors and the hideous things in nature um, in, in order to kind of wake us up. And there is obviously a lot of truth that aspects of nature are broken, filled with fissures and abysses, uh, black holes, right? Um, creation groans in the way that you and uh, that you articulated earlier. And um, and yet on the other hand, right, you have someone like Merton, at least at this time, and a lot of romantics who present nature as this kind of soothing anodyne. But there's an there's a there's a there's a partial denial uh, that is present in both of those dispositions, right? Emphasizing just the horror or just the kind of soothing veil. And so I, I would put forth as an exemplary contemplative realist approach, something more like what we see in Willa Cather's incredible novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, where uh, she starts with the novel with this priest who's a missionary from France, lost in the deserts of New Mexico. And he looks around him, he thinks he's circling and going in a kind of labyrinthine, uh, winding, circular motion that he can't escape. And suddenly nature looks to him like what he describes as a geometrical nightmare. Um, and even though the created world is beautiful, he's lost that sense of it. But then just when he's caught in that geometrical nightmare, his, his horse, his animal leads him to this tree that is described as being in the shape of a cross or it's a cruciform tree, right? So nature at that moment also reveals, even through its cruciform shape, uh, the, the traces and the marks of the creator. Uh, and so the contemplative realist aesthetic is, is, is sort of doggedly devoted to, to doing justice to both of those aspects as, of reality, of the created world. Okay, great, thank you. This leads to the next passage I wanted to ask you about, which is the, it's a provocative phrase in light of that idea about the dual aspect of reality. Uh, here's what you write. Uh, very next page back in the book, uh, page eight. It is an essential fact of contemplative realism that the desire to really see is necessarily unfulfilled. Yeah, right. That's yeah. Uh, so. There is a there's a there's a mystery there, and that that speaks to I think the the aspect of contempl contemplation that involves the lover's gaze, right? So. Josef um, Pieper, who is really important in this book, you know, sets the tone by saying that in our time, man's ability to see is in decline. Yeah. So our, our, on the one hand, we have all of these things that are promising us a, a greater ability to connect and to be able to have an increased access to the world, um, but a lot of those things just end up giving us more kind of blinders um, and reduce our ability to see because, you know, as Romano Gardini says, the roots of the eye are in the heart. And so what we're able to see and what we're not able to see has a lot to do with the states of our, our hearts, the states of our souls, more than it does to, you know, our optical nerves or something like that, you know. Um, and so, but for the for the for the one who has love in their heart, right? For the one who has the lover's gaze, a lover can never see enough of the beloved. Mm. Right? Never, you could never see enough of the beloved. That would be an that's an impossible. If you've seen enough of your beloved, then you're no longer a lover, right? And so, 
the desire to see enough is therefore never satisfied. And it leaves you in this state of constant wide-eyed gaze, right? Just in love with the real um, because it's a gift, right? Seeing it as gift is is hugely important uh, for, for the, the contemplative realist. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Another passage here that really I thought was provocative, put its finger on a thing that I think is, is important. Uh, and I notice a lot myself in reading uh, a lot of modern fiction, especially you write this from page 16. Um, the unresolvable numinous is the mood belief assumes in most modern fiction. Supposedly spiritual happenings are rendered with a relativized suspension of disbelief, reflecting only a notional indulgence, indulgence in firm, unironic, simple-hearted credulity. That idea of an unresolvable numinous, like there's something there, but we can't define it. That kind of describes a lot of what might be called post-secular fiction, exactly, yeah. as opposed to more conventional, say, Christian theistic fiction. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you comment on that passage? It's, I, think it's, it, it, I think it puts its finger on something very uh, observable. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually do appreciate a lot of what we see in that post-secular literary turn. I mean, because there yeah, is this... There's this haunting that happens to these characters who are comfortable, at least in the beginning, with a, a, a secular age that has scrubbed the cosmos of anything that's, you know, sublime or mysterious. And then there's this kind of inter this intervention of, of again something that is undefinable that is apparently spiritual in its nature, and, and it, it shatters their lives, right? Um, and they have to act. But at the same time, there's never really a, a, a firm turn towards any sort of committed belief or certainly no turn towards something more doctrinal or dogmatic. Those are not sort of permissible. And I think, again, that uh, is reflective of our time where there is just a shattering of the grand narratives that people used to be able to stand more firmly on. Um, but it's it, it might be more reflective of our time and the experience that people have of religion in our time and of the spiritual in our time. But that doesn't mean that it's actually more objectively true in, in terms of giving an account of the way that the spiritual works. Because the the truly spiritual is always more invitingly and and demandingly mysterious than it is ambiguous, if that makes sense, right? So a lot of the narratives that you're describing, there's a satisfaction with sort of like, well, this could be something spiritual, but it's probably just a psychological projection in the character's mind. So let's just sort of leave that unanswered and we'll try to move on with our lives, right? The truly mysterious says, no, this isn't, there's no way we can write this off as just mere sort of psychological projection. This is something erupting upon our lives. And, and, and there's, a, there's a reality to it that demands a response. I love that distinction between uh, the mysterious and the ambiguous. I think that's really uh, provocative. A lot of uh, my interests, a lot of uh, things I write about presently involve a spiritual experience. And while I appreciate, you know, as you articulated, kind of the numinous quality of certain novels, something happens to characters or situations or you know where you say there's something there what is that i i'm especially moved by novels that can make an equation from there to things that are firmer 
in um, connecting it to uh, the divine, the sacred in some way, and not simply to the psychological or the uncanny. Yeah. Uh, right. That's a really important distinction. Yeah. And I just, I, I followed up with one other point. It, it, I was working with my students through Flannery's uh, essay, Flannery Connor's essay, The Church and the Fiction Writer. And, you know, she says that, that uh, in, in the modern period, people try to basically either get rid of mystery or they try to relocate it in a way that will make less demands on us and I really just that really was convicting and, and and resonated so deeply because I think that part of the reason that people are comfortable with the the spiritually numinous and not sort of more traditional uh articulations of 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 unseen realities is is that it it's just easier if that makes sense right it doesn't it doesn't require a constant ongoing conversion of any of us because we can just sort of say well this is more of a a spiritual experience that's for me almost in a therapeutic way rather than something that 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 moves us again towards a kind of self-scrubbing so yeah that's right there's no commitment there right yeah, which which i mean and it's it, it's an openness but with no implication <laughs> yeah that's a good way that's 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 a really good way of putting it yeah yeah let me ask about one more passage in the book uh there i mean there's so many we could go over because it's such a rich book but at least for just time purposes one more a passage here uh, from page 25, you write, not all moral vision is moralism. Not all spiritual vision is oversimplified false piety. An artistic vision that is richly moral and daringly prophetic, far from being unreal, picks up on the registers of actuality that pack the most being. Oh, yeah, it's, it's great. Can you, can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, everyone who has spent even a few minutes in kind of Christian uh, literary circles, and everyone, even if you haven't, and you've just sort of encountered what is oftentimes called Christian art, you know, knows that in most cases, what falls underneath that label is just an atrocious offense against both God and art. <laughs> um, it's just, I mean, it's awful. It's it's just notoriously saccharine and you know yeah. sappy. Uh, it's basically sort of hallmark specials with a little bit of Deus Ex Machina God added in, and art is subjected to a kind of heavy-handed moralism as well so it's it's faulty on both of those counts now i think partially because of the innumerable cultural productions that fall under that description um there has been a sort of a backlash uh that tries to tries to to say that anytime you know you try to address moral questions in literature, you're going to end up with heavy-handed moralism. Uh, anytime that a novel or a film will try to even articulate a moral vision and not just hold out like five options, but actually present one person's life, one character's life as sort of the answer or the most compelling, that you'll end up putting it, it'll end up sounding like an after-school special or something like that, right? And I guess my firm stance on this point is that while that may oftentimes be the case, it doesn't have to be. And 
it's up to artists who are working right now to give the lie to that um to that misconception so that for example you know because what it has led to is this idea that like sort of you either then for for that reason if you want to be a good artist you kind of don't pursue holiness you know what i mean if you if you want to be a, a good artist you, you want to be a you want to be you want to pursue holiness fine you can become a saint then leave your novels behind leave mm -hmm. your literature and your art and you're behind because it's just going to be bad literature but if you want to become a good writer then sort of don't get too serious about these religious things or these moral questions right and it's back to that that what you made point you made earlier is a very important point that the idea of realism which we've inherited is one that says what is most real is what is most gritty and in some ways most tragic you know um mm -hmm. most um tra traumatic in some ways that what's most real what causes us the deepest wound yeah and, and the point you're making in the book is that, well, okay, not that those things don't exist, but to call them the most real things is really maybe not an, a reflection, actually, of what, of what is most real, certainly not alongside things that, that appeal to other aspects of our nature or to other facets of our, of our experience. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. great. Um, a few minutes left here for, I've got questions I still mm -hmm. want to ask you. Let me ask you about something here in the book that I, I think is a very important point, where you argue, I'm quoting you here, that the practitioner of contemplative realism must become a Christian contemplative. Mm. Got a, a couple of questions for you here. What for you is the connection between a writer's gifts as a writer and the being of that writer as a person, mm -hmm. right? And, and is the same hold true for readers? Must one be a contemplative in order to become a good reader of contemplative fiction? Yeah, no, that's a really, it's a great question. Uh, and I wish we had time to pull up a chair and pour a pint and, and chat. I out know, I'm sorry. A few weeks, no, but <laughs> I'll try to do justice to it in a very short order. Um, so yeah, I mean, on the one hand, St. John Henry Newman has this understanding of literature as a record of man in rebellion. And I think that writers who are themselves caught up in rebellion, that is to say, they're not really trying to strive after holiness, um, can give us a very accurate, compelling, moving account of that fallenness. Uh, so it's not necessary to write very good works of literature uh, to be a mystic or a contemplative or a saint. Uh, but for one thing, those writers would have to have a, a high level of honesty about their own uh, corruption, I guess I would say, and a dissatisfaction with the state in which they reside, if that makes sense, right? So they can only really write it compellingly if they know that that's not where they ought to be, even if they're not doing anything in their own personal lives to change that, right? So we, we know about all these writers like Evelyn Waugh and Tolstoy, great writers, not such good fathers, right? We can we can proliferate the examples. Uh, and so I would never say that, you know, you have to be this upstanding citizen and mystic in order to be a novelist or an artist, absolutely not. But that being said, um, I think that if, insofar as any of us fall short of, uh, of, of holiness or of mystical commitment and of mystical commitment, in, to the degree to which we fall short of that, our art will also lack levels of mystery that it could have had. And it will contain 
disproportions because if you're a committed contemplative, you're always looking at partial and passing things under the aspect of eternity, and you're not going to be inclined to over-exaggerate uh, the, the, the presence of a conflict or the presence of a character um, and, and give them undue weight, if that makes sense. So I guess that's, 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 that's a start um, in terms of answering that question, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. That's a that's a very good brief answer. And yes, it does make me want to sort of spend a few weeks <laughs> talking about this, right? Um, but maybe future conversations, Josh. That sounds yeah. wonderful. Um, you conclude your book by remarking that contemplative realism seeks to endow us with a more complete capacity to see, and that such capacity attends greater fullness of choice. It's your phrase, fullness of choice. Mm. What does that choice mm -hmm. mean to you? Mm -hmm. yeah, so, I mean, if you think about how our will works, right, we make and how our deliberation works, we, you know, we deliberate over what our minds, what our imaginations and our memories present to us as possible. And so insofar as our imaginations really are constrained, uh, then what appears to be possible is also constrained and therefore our actions will be more limited than they oftentimes need to be. Uh, and so for that reason, when we make decisions in life, oftentimes we, we, we make them based on false premises, right? We think only two things are possible, but there are actually 20. Or we think that, or we mischaracterize, right? Why one choice is better than another because we, we are just deficient. Uh, in terms of the eyes of our heart, right? And so my contention here is not that if, it's not as if to say, oh, if you only can see correctly, therefore it'll immediately rectify your will, if that makes sense, right? So it's a, you still have the problem that Augustine talks about of like the, the, the will can just be kind of rebellious and, and unwilling um, in spite of how, no matter how much you know, you can know everything, you can see everything very clearly and your will can still say, ain't gonna do it, right? Um. And so, but it is to say that if you do open your eyes to the fullness of being that is present all around us in any created thing in, in ourselves and in our own um, attempt to grasp the nature of God, uh, if you do that at all, then you're going to be more likely to be compelled. If you do that more, more fully and more honestly, you're going to be more likely to be compelled to move in the right direction, right? If that makes sense, right? Um, it does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I belong to a community that, that believes in the importance and teaches the importance of seeking the will of God, not that we ever discern it fully, but that we can try to, to, to become better at, at, at discerning what that is. And in my own experience, you know, um, if you approach God with an or question, is it this or is it that? And if you're really open you know, to the spirit, if you, if you seek to discern, there's usually some other way of seeing it that you hadn't understood beforehand. So you present God with two choices, come away with three, you know, or, or some new purchase on the issue um, that does expand how you understand the world, how you can feel other things around you more deeply. And it does, I think, expand choice. So that, that point you make in the book really resonated with me personally, I know. So I appreciate well, yeah, it. If, if I could just really briefly just make one final remark on this point. So, Absolutely. you know, Joseph Pieper, who I also draw on, uh, on, on this aspect of, of the book, uh, says that 
the contemporary the contemplative person right and the artist needs to be endowed with the ability to see in an exceptionally intensive manner and so he sees not not what everybody sees right and so to this point all of us will have limitations and constrictions on our vision and our on our imagination and um, some of us more than others whereas we might have other strengths for example that the imaginative artist completely lacks right so somebody who's co totally committed to the the common good politically right is the artist oftentimes is completely deficient <laughs> in the <laughs> virtues that are required to do that but um but because so we can't all just be left to our own devices to see these things in, in a, an exceptionally intensive manner. And so that is part of the gift that the artist can give, right? You don't have to do all of the uh, imaginative and contemplative legwork because the novel already does it for you. Um, and it invites you to participate in that vision that you wouldn't have been able to access on your own. Okay, great. Thank you for that. You know, we won't have time to talk about some of the writers that you that you discuss in the book. I will mention them for our listeners. Uh, you take up people like you know, Willa Cather and Dostoevsky and Flannery O'Connor and others that might be kind of surprising in a book like this one, Flaubert and Nietzsche and Virginia Woolf and others. Uh, it's, it's a very thoughtful book um, with some very uh, good insights into a whole wide range of different writers. And I really recommend it to our listeners. Let me leave you with maybe this question here you know this podcast is going to drop in january but we're recording it in december uh about two weeks before christmas and i've been asked um in my own community to write a series of meditations for a local uh christmas program and and i don't cite flannery o'connor but i've been thinking a lot about um uh an idea of hers that you cite in your book i'm quoting her now you, i'm quoting you quoting her quote the contemplative realist rem remembers well o'connor's insistence that life from the standpoint of the central Christian mystery has for all its horror been found by God to be worth dying for. So here's my question. Are you able to retain hold of that thought? I mean, if so, is it everyday life that you find most redemptive or is it moments set apart from the everyday, moments almost emblematic of high aesthetic achievement? And I suppose I'm asking you what inspires your own envision your own vision of contemplative realism? Yeah, good good question. I think that uh, first I would say that if if I if I did not believe that or the 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 passage that you just cited about the world for all of its horror having been worth dying for, I I honestly don't know how I would kind of go on living, if that makes sense, because I think that, you know, the the, the state of reality does kind of become overwhelming uh, when we look when we look out at this the state of things it is it can be incredibly dire and so if if that dire state were something that was just forgotten or arbitrary uh, it would be a much different cosmos than if it was something that is groaning for redemption so if you know choosing one or the other of those, sort of answers uh, makes for a very different life. I would say in terms of how where I most completely find the interruptions or the interventions of, of the mysterious and of grace, uh, I, again, it's both. And 
answer. Uh, I'm a, the father of four, and you know I have two jobs basically put together. It can sometimes come out to almost two full-time jobs, and so I have a very kind of almost monastically regimented life, which is in many ways then comes to feel very ordinary. And so if I was not attentive to the little uh, in interruptions of mystery and grace, I think I would be missing God entirely most days. Um, for example, you know, when my daughter will just reach out and take my hand or run run her fingers through my hair or something like that, right? I mean, that is a that is a, a tremendous sacrament of of God's love. Um, but also, I myself, you know, I was scandalized by. Uh, the Eucharist when I was 13 and I actually left the church because I thought that Catholics were cannibals, but I've returned when I was 21 and I I am absolutely in love with the Eucharistic presence. And so I, you know, think that that is again, continuously a, a scandal, the idea that God's real presence is in the parish two blocks from me inside this golden box, right? Um, and so to me, that's also another source and summit of of what you're describing. Thank you uh, for, for those thoughts and for your time and for the book and for the work that you do. Uh, you're a busy man and, um, and, and you have a lot to say and I'm grateful you're saying it. Uh, thank you for your time this morning, Joshua. It's great to talk with you. I couldn't be more grateful for this conversation, Matthew. Thank you for everything. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.